Talk about a record that literally flew off the charts. You can't get much more extreme than the golden record that NASA launched back in 1977 aboard the two Voyager deep space probes. With 115 images, spoken greetings in 55 languages, a host of animal and nature sounds, and musical selections from Bach to Chuck Berry, the golden record represented humanity's yearning to make contact with life among the stars and to say hello. As the Voyager probes make their way further and further into space, it begs questions such as, is there anyone out there who might give the golden record a spin? And where's the record that's coming our way? Hello, I'm your host Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, I sat down with two experts from the famed SETI Institute, whose passion is listening to the stars and seeking new life. Joining me today are Dr. Natalie Cabral, Director of the Carl Sagan Center for the Study of Life in the Universe, and Dr. Seth Shostak, Senior Astronomer. I asked Natalie and Seth to expound on topics such as, if intelligent life is out there, why has it been so hard for us to find any evidence of it? And what can extreme environments on Earth teach us about the potential presence of life on other planets? I also shared a number of questions submitted by our listener audience. All right. Well, Natalie and Seth, thank you both so much for joining me. Um, I've got to admit, you know, I've long been a fan of the work uh, of Carl Sagan and uh, the SETI Institute. And I know when we put this on the docket to do as far as podcasts, we had a lot of our listeners were very interested in this topic. We got a lot of questions. I wasn't able to include them all, of course, but we do have some listener questions as well. And we'll, we'll get into that as well. But first of all, uh, thank you both. I know how busy you are. Uh, Natalie, just uh, believe you just got a book put out and have been making the rounds, I think, back from, uh, from Europe. And uh, Seth, I know you're parentally busy, you know, on TV and stuff. So uh, again, thank you both very much. A real pleasure, Paul. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. All right. So, um, Seth, I'm going to start with you. And I've got what I'm calling kind of the unfair question. And it's namely, if intelligent life is out there, why has it been so hard for us to find any evidence of it? Well, I mean, you could come up with lots of responses to that, beginning with, well, maybe there aren't any aliens. Mm. It seems a little unlikely, given the prevalence of planets and, you know, the fact that there are many, many worlds that could be similar enough to Earth to spawn intelligence eventually. Mm. I think that the answer that people in the SETI uh, field would offer you is that we simply haven't looked in enough places with enough sensitivity. I mean, if you figure, you know, if we were on the, the next planet over outside our own solar system mm -hmm. uh, in the Proxima Centauri system, and there is a planet there that's about the same size and average temperature as Earth, if you were there with our SETI experiments, you would not be able to pick up the Earth. In general, you would not. So that gives you some idea of the limitations of this kind of, of an experiment. It requires mm -hmm some fairly special behavior on the part of the aliens. And I think that's the answer to your, to your question. Mm. And maybe our, like, our, our technology is just not there yet, or we haven't, we haven't expanded our footprint, you know, galactically, as it were, to where, you know, we maybe can pick that up, I guess. Yeah. It would, keep in mind, we're not broadcasting. So mm. we're just listening. So, you know, it isn't that we're waiting for the aliens to notice us. Mm. Mm. I got you. Now, are you using emerging technologies such as like data science or artificial intelligence to aid you in the search? Yeah, well, certainly we are. I mean, uh, particularly over at the University of California, Berkeley, 
where they have already tried using artificial intelligence, really machine learning, mm -hmm. to recognize when a signal is a, a candidate for being ET mm -hmm. and when it's not. And by the way, you know, in the movies, you get the impression that you only pick up a signal, you know, every couple of weeks or maybe never. But mm -hmm. that's not the case. The facts are that you pick up signals every, well, every minute you pick up several signals, right? So you have to sort through those. And machine learning is a good way to sort through them. Uh, humans really don't have the bandwidth, right. it's a local term, to do that. Mm, no, I can imagine. And you're probably picking up all kinds of like interstellar noises. And, you know, I, I can't imagine what all it is, but you have to comb through that. And, you know, oh, that was yeah. anomaly. There's nothing there. And, well, the kind of signal we look for, which is, say, a narrow band signal, a mm -hmm. signal that's at one particular frequency on the radio dial, mm -hmm. those kinds of signals are not produced naturally. So we don't have any problem with, uh, you know, quasars, pulsars, hot, hot or cold gas, all of which produce radio signals. Yes, but they're not the kinds of signals we're looking for. So they, they really aren't, aren't part of the problem. The problem mm -hmm. is homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. But homo sapiens is always part of the problem. So what kind of advances in technology, Seth, do you think will be needed to finally break through and discover life among the stars? Well, I mean, one never knows. You can't say, are we close to finding a signal or not? Mm -hmm. uh, I rather, I think, unfortunately, bet everybody in an audience in Germany a couple of years ago that we would find a signal before about 2035, mm -hmm. right? And I bet everybody a cup of coffee. So I'm probably going to be buying a lot of coffee because of that. But uh, the reason is that, indeed, the equipment does keep getting better. And in fact, mm -hmm. if you kind of graph the improvement of sensitivity or search space or anything, any metric of the SETI effort mm -hmm. uh, with time, then you find it doubles roughly every two years. That's just Moore's law for computers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, that's not a coincidence because computers are essential to what we do. And as the computers get faster, we can sift through the sky faster. Mm -hmm. So, Natalie, um, you know, one of the one of the areas of expertise that you are uh, that you are in is uh, looking at extreme environments. You can see videos and papers. Natalie has, has traveled to like some pretty extreme places here on Earth. Uh, to see, you know, about the conditions that can support life. So uh, my question, my first question for you, Natalie, is what can extreme environments on Earth teach us about the potential presence of life on other planets? Well, you know, this is an interesting question because we, we are still trying to figure out how life, you know, started on Earth here. And mm. a few decades ago, uh, we started to look at very interesting places like the bottom of the ocean or in other places like hydrothermal systems. And then we realized there, there is a range of microbes that survive in impossible places. Mm. And at the same time, planetary exploration was taking off, literally. And, and so uh, we discovered that some of these environments were very similar to what we're seeing in, in those places. Mm -hmm. So, especially Mars or Europa or Enceladus, etc. So, by going to those places on Earth, first we are learning a lot about our own planet and our origins, mm -hmm. but we are also learning what kind of microbes could survive in those different environments in the in the solar system. And, and even better than that, by studying them, we are also understanding how we should be exploring them. 
we are trying instruments and we are trying exploration strategies in those extreme environments. So this is what they are for. They are incredible uh, test beds for a number of things. So let me ask you on that, if we were to find uh, microbial life on another planet, you know, what criteria would need to would be needed to ascertain if there was any relation to the emergence of life on earth? Like, how do we know they're not mutually exclusive? Yeah, you know, again, this is a wonderful question and so timely because right now, uh, astrobiology is coming up with a white paper, especially regarding that question on how can we announce the discovery of life it's not an easy thing. And, and uh, just because we don't know what life is, we don't have a consensus de- definition for life on earth, believe it or not. Uh, mm. So it's hard to look for something we don't have a definition for. Mm. But uh, so what I, I think, you know, it's like everything else. And Seth probably can say the same thing for the study signal. You have to have a number of converging evidence. Uh, and, and, and life has always to be the hypothesis of last resort. And this is how we work. We are going to say, okay, this thing seems to be reproducing. It seems to be metabolizing. It does the kind of things that we recognize as processes uh, for life on earth. Of course, it is for life as we know it. So what we are doing right now is to try to uh, develop intellectual frameworks. So, you know, a checklist of things Mm -hmm. that would match that. But as far as, uh, as we know, at this point in time, there is not an unambiguous biosignature. Bio and this is where we run into problems sometimes, like with the Viking biological experiment. This one is easy enough because in 76, in, in when you know, we, we had some evidence showing that it, potentially there was life doing something into that experiment, mm-hmm. uh, we had no clue about the environment, the Martian environment that was the first landed mission on Mars. And so we had no clue uh, when you have an equation with two unknowns, you better know at least one of them so you can talk, you know, in an educated, educated fashion uh, about the other one. And we knew very little about both of them. So yes. with time, we, we realized that it is likely that the environment created uh, that signal that we saw with the Viking experiment. Uh, then uh, we had another Martian rocks, the Allen Hill meteorites, and, and mm-hmm. the difficulty of understanding what we are seeing are fossils or, or, or something else. And then uh, more recently, the Venus phosphine. Uh, so these you know, are the kind of things that make you reflect on when will we be able to say that we, we recognize life. I always joke that you know, unless there is a, a rabbit jumping in front of the rover on Mars, it will be difficult at this <laughs> point in time to know that life is but if you, if, if you allow me, I'd like to comment a little bit on the question you, you, you asked, Seth, why E.T. is not responding. Mm-hmm. There are a number of reasons, you know, Seth mentioned. But there, there are also some of them that are there again because we don't know about the life process in, in the universe. I'm with Seth with that. There are too many planets all over the place for us to be alone. I, I mean, it, it, it's statistically, you know, uh, an absurdity to, to even think that's the case. But then you have to think about, uh, and again, uh, just for life as we know it, is life as we know it a generational process, which means that the kind of life we know we could recognize, etc., has come to be just because the stars that you know, preceded us, just released recently the type of material that makes life as we know it. And we know it's all over the place. 
there again, you know, another good reason for life to be abundant. But it may be that the type of life that we know of started at about the same time. So uh, maybe there are lots of very young civilization. Maybe they're also uh, all of them waking up to the possibility of communicating. And mm -hmm. then we have to be synchronous in space and time. Uh, and there might be many other reasons, right? But uh, there is at least this one that we can add to the, uh, to the list of hypotheses. No, oh, it's interesting. And one of the things, one of the questions that had come through from the audience was, was basically positing that given like how long it's projected the universe may last or the, the lifespan of the universe that we're in the early days. I'm not sure where this was coming from, but like that we're in the early days of the potential lifespan of the universe. And so maybe we're just like on the, the cutting edge of life, but that life will like, will happen and occur, you know, much longer in these like crazy time spans, you know, way out. And, you know, we're just happen to be the only kids in the block right at the moment. I, I don't know. And I don't know how you even, how you even figure. Well, there, there is something, there is something about that hypothesis though. Mm -hmm. and, and again, you know, we don't even know what life is. And there are some very, very strange hypotheses coming up from physics, uh, quantum physics these days and neuroscience, etc. So I'm not even going there. Yeah. Staying the universe we know, the thing I would say is that if we are right about the universe expanding and galaxies, you know, producing less and less stars, mm -hmm. then you are coming up with a problem. We might be at a time where it's a good time to be alive <laughs> <laughs> just because the stars are producing the right stuff. After yeah. that, it become, we might be running out fuel. I don't know what you think, Seth. You know, life on this planet is based on really a handful of elements, carbon, nitrogen, uh, hydrogen, oxygen, sulfur, a few mm -hmm. others are in there, but mm -hmm. those are the big ones. They make up probably 98% of the weight of all life on this planet. Mm -hmm. but we, and, and many of those are made in stars. So at the time of the Big Bang, or shall we say 100 million years after the Big Bang, yeah, there was a lot of hydrogen and helium, but there wasn't very much carbon, for example. However, mm -hmm. and this is, a, this is just a field of astronomy, we know that stars had already begun to seed space with the elements of life very, very quickly, maybe mm. within a billion years after the Big Bang. In other words, by far the majority of time mm -hmm. that the universe has, has existed, there have been the requirements for life, at least as we know it. And while it's true that we might be the youngest kids on the block or among them, mm -hmm. that seems unlikely because there could have been kids on the block, even if it took four billion years for yeah. kids to evolve from you know, a reproducing molecule, uh, mm -hmm. That could have happened 10 billion years ago or 8 billion years ago. Yeah. So uh, I, I suspect that there's a lot of intelligence out there that's far older than we are. And in fact, that might be the easiest to find. Yeah, it seems like if we could, you know, this is way above my pay grade, but if we could somehow figure out where the Big Bang took place, like as in a place in time and space in the universe, and then, you know, as it expands, of course, time unfolds. So it's like, if you could pinpoint like what is quote unquote, the center of the universe or where the big bang took place. Well, Paul, that would be where the life would be. Yeah. But there is no such place that, that that's a mistake that people envision the big bang mm -hmm. as happening, you know, 13 billion years ago, whatever. Right. But there's this big dark room with nothing in it. And somewhere in that room, there's an explosion and then there's a big bang, but that's mm -hmm. not the way it was. The big bang created this space. You can't find the center of the of the Big Bang any more than you can find 
you know, the central place on Earth, on the surface of the Earth. It's a sphere. Every point is as good as any other point. Oh. So uh, there is no center. Oh, oh, wow. What a shame. But <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to work on that. My next question. So I've got a question for Seth and for Nat- Natalie. Uh, and I'll start with you, Natalie. What is one of the most surprising things you've learned in your career as an astrobiologist and explorer of extreme environments? Uh, there are a number of them, but the thing that, you know, really uh, sticks with me is that I still have to find a place where life isn't. Hmm. And so it seems that, you know, when you get life started and we don't even know what that means, we don't know if it's a transition from prebiotic hmm. chemistry to biology or if it's uh, something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get started, you just cannot get rid of it. Life is a past, as we all know <laughs> by now. <laughs> All right. And then Seth, for you, what is one of the most surprising things you've learned in your career uh, in astronomy? Well, in astronomy, I think it was when I was a graduate student Mm -hmm. and I was studying a bunch of uh, nearby galaxies. And one of the things that came out of that was to know how quickly they spin. You know, galaxies do spin, most of them anyhow, Mm -hmm. right? And everybody expected that if you went to points that are very far from the center of the galaxy, that the spinning would slow down in the same way that, you know, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, they all go around the sun at a slower rate than mm-hmm. the inner planets. That's just, you know, that's century from, uh, sorry, that's physics from 500 years ago. There's nothing surprising about that. But what mm-hmm. was surprising for me was that that wasn't true. And we found in the late 1960s, as galaxies spun too quickly, clearly there was some mass in those galaxies that we couldn't see. Wow. Yeah, it's just it's mind-boggling some of the celestial mechanics at play. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna go to the audience question portion. And so this first one is a question from Zach Alexander of Bristol, uh, UK. And this question is for Seth. What is the simplest signal you would identify as being from an intelligent source? Well, our criterion, that's a that's a good question. And I uh applaud anybody from Bristol. Uh, Bristol has so a very nice bridge built mm. by uh, Isabard Kingdom Brunel, mm. <laughs> and, and it's still in use. It's a wonderful thing. Anyhow, that aside, what kind of signal? Well, look, the sorts of signals we're looking for, we tried to keep that as general as possible. I mean, some people think, oh, you're looking for, you know, the Fibonacci series, or you're looking for prime numbers, or you're looking for pi, or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. All of that now is that that's not right. That's not what we do. We look for the technical characteristics of the signal, right? So fundamentally, those boil down to one thing. Mm-hmm. Is the signal really at only one spot in the radio spectrum, if it's a radio experiment that we're doing, right? So is it at 1453.5 megahertz on the dial or some other number, but not all over the dial? Because if you have a quasar or a pulsar or anything else, mm-hmm. uh, radio noise made by uh, Jupiter or the sun, those signals are everywhere you look. You don't have to tune to a particular frequency. Mm. And so nature is not as good an engineer as an alien would be. That's the assumption. Okay. So an alien is going to be a much more directed signal. It's not just going to be scattershot all over the place. But it's- Well, that's something else. I mean, whether they're directed toward us or some other uh, part of the galaxy, that, that we can't say. Mm-hmm. But what we're looking for is a signal that's narrow band. I mean, you tune into your favorite, I don't know, radio station, right? Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and it's at a particular spot on the dial. It's yeah. not all over the dial. Mm-hmm. That's the sick. That's the, uh, if you will, the indication of a transmitter. And that's what we look for. Okay. I got you. All right. So uh, this next question is from Sam Lau uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. And this is a question for Natalie. Does SETI have a program to think about the larger ethical and philosophical implications if contact with alien intelligence is made? Well, yeah, we have uh, um, ethical uh, question, you know, being looked after by a, a different level. I, the protocol for, for uh, SETI exists. It, to some kind, Seth can, can talk more about this, but there, there is a series of things that need to happen to verify a signal, etc. cetera. Uh, for the ethics of finding life, that goes from microbes to ET. Uh, we, we cover the whole Drake equation here. For microbe, there is what we call uh, um, planetary protection. Mm-hmm. Try and understand, you know, uh, how to prevent contamination when we go to another planet just for scientific purposes in the first place. You don't want to travel a hundred and a million miles and discover that, you know, terrestrial life is thriving all over the place because we already know, for instance, that on Mars, some terrestrial microbes could survive there. So that's a, mm-hmm. a reason as well why we're not landing. People are pulling their air up saying, but you have ice, you know, near the, the polycaps and it's right there and you have ice in the high latitude. Why aren't you landing your spacecraft in those places? Well, yeah. that's the reason why. We have right now uh, sterilization protocols that basically allow a spacecraft to leave for space with a certain amount of microbe per unit, okay, mm-hmm. uh, surface unit on the spacecraft. Then we know that we have done the, to the best of our knowledge, the best we could uh, to sterilize the spacecraft. And then if you land on Mars, on the place where there is no ice or water too mm-hmm. close to the surface, then considering the environmental condition on Mars, you will be, you know, the spacecraft will be sterilized within a few days, uh, just because you have cosmic rays and all of this good stuff falling at the surface. But in terms of, and and contamination goes both ways. We also don't want to bring back anything. Now, the ethical question comes about, what if we are finding life on any of the planetary bodies in, in the solar system? Mm-hmm. And, and and right now it's still a, you know up for discussion. People are talking about this. Some of them are saying, well, you know, leave the uh, Mars to the Martian, fence mm-hmm. the place. <laughs> We're not going there. <laughs> Others are saying, well, look at what happened, you know, in the history of humanity. It's mm-hmm. never really good to be discovered. <laughs> uh, so. For when it comes to alien, the good thing about it is that they might want to impose their ethical views on us because mm-hmm. if they are making the journey, uh, you know, to visit us, mm-hmm. then that means that they are fairly more advanced, fairly more advanced than we are. Mm-hmm. So I don't know about the ethics. I know that there is a lot of discussion, especially when you are starting to talk about religion, about you know these kind of things. It is an interesting debate. We, we have this chance at the Institute to be working with the current and the previous director mm-hmm. of uh, the observatory of the Vatican. And, and, and they are astronomers and they are wonderful, wonderful men. And, and we're discussing all of those things. But at this point in time, it's at, it's at the level of the discussion. So this next question uh, is from Pamela Jordan in Greenville, South Carolina. And this one is for Seth. 
beyond listening in the radio spectrum, searching for light signals and searching for infrastructure, are there other detection technologies being considered by SETI? Well, I think <laughs> I think she may have covered them all. I mean, we look for signals, radio signals. That's the traditional SETI approach. That's 60 years old now. Mm-hmm. We also look for, if you will, flashing lasers, right? Uh, we're building some infrastructure. The people at the University of California, Berkeley, are building some instruments as well that mm-hmm. could see, you know, a, a laser that happened to be aimed in our direction. Uh, that would be a, obviously another sign of intelligence. and. In general, you could say that while not looking for these things specifically, all astronomers who use telescopes are looking for ET2 because if they were to find some giant engineering project, the Dyson spheres or something like that, giant construction that some civilization that's a, a million years more advanced than we are has built, then they would say, well, I don't quite know what that is. Maybe it's aliens. And this has happened uh, at least a half dozen times in the history of astronomy. It's never turned out to be aliens, but mm. it's worth uh, checking out because maybe one time it will be. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. So this next question is for Natalie. This is from Bijoy uh, Manathara from uh, Dubai, United Arab Emirates. And he writes, given that the SETI mission is to study life uh, in the universe, I'd like to know if SETI is involved in the study of life in oceanic trenches. So specifically in trenches, uh, I don't think so, but we have uh, one of our PIs, at least one of them, uh, and a small team uh, with him looking at life and environments for life uh, in the ocean, uh, right next to hydrothermal uh, vents off the coast of Oregon. Yes, of course. Okay, excellent. And then uh, my last question, this was suggested by a number of folks, uh, including uh, Richard Lambert of Leeds, UK, uh, Victor Lepatillo from Wokingham, uh, UK, Claire Levers from Sydney, Australia, and Tomasz Alakvier from Warsaw, Poland. They're all asking in, in a kind of different angles, but about the Drake equation. And so it's been 60 years since Dr. Frank Drake gave the world the famed Drake equation, a probability formula to estimate the presence of extraterrestrial civilizations. Now, the formula retains widespread interest. Admittedly, many, if not most of its factors remain unknown. And so the question is, and this is for both of y'all, why do you think the equation retains such fascination for people? And do you think we might crack some of its variables in our lifetime? And uh, why don't we, we'll start with Natalie and then Seth, you weigh in as well. So I'm sure you both have some opinions here. First, I would say that I, I, I would disagree uh, with the fact that, you know, a lot of the factors at this point in time remain unknown. In fact, I think that's completely the opposite. We're starting to populate, it, to populate them very, very well. Okay. Uh, and, and to me, the beauty of the Drake equation, it's in its simplicity and its flexibility, because you can even, if you think of it, think about life as we don't know it with the Drake equation. You just mm-hmm. have to move uh, the habitable zone. You have to tweak the kind of you know, uh, initial parameters that uh, you, you want to input in it. And, and also the other thing that makes me smile often is that, of course, because it's such a successful and simple and elegant way of approaching what is actually the astrobiology roadmap from the origins of life to ET, right? Mm -hmm. Is that 
there there have been many attempts uh, at adding something or you know just tweaking something to to get a, a, a different version, but all of them are just tweaks. Hmm. They are not changing anything mm-hmm. that you know fundamentally to the Drake equation. And and right, right now, look at you know uh, we know a lot better about habitable zone. We have been tweaking uh, the uh, um, the notion of habitable zone. Uh, we have added a number of greenhouse gases uh, uh, that actually changed uh, uh, the place of the Earth a, a little bit. We we know a lot more about exoplanets today. We are making progress in terms of uh, extreme environments on Earth, which tells us a lot more about life I- in the universe. We also understand today that the habitable zone is not the only thing. Mm-hmm. That is important when you are searching for life. You have a habitable environment, which means that you can be way outside of the habitable zone and still have places where life could exist. Uh, there are so many progresses being made in astronomy. And, and also, we are living experiment for the L factor. Uh, we are living it every single day today. So uh, to me, you know, the Drake equation is the gift that keeps on giving. I, mm-hmm. I think that we will understand a lot better his power uh, in the decades to come. Okay, interesting. Okay, and then Seth, uh, your take on the Drake equation. Well, look, the Drake equation was formulated mm-hmm. uh, not to be in the back of all the astronomy textbooks that you know that it is in, which is to say all of them, all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the second most popular equation in science, so it is said, after E equals MC squared. But yeah. Frank you know, he developed this equation. It was actually based on another equation that had been developed uh, by an astronomer, a guy by the name of Harlow Shapley. It doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but it's a great way to organize information. If you want to do a SETI experiment, it would be nice to at least know whether you're wasting your time or whether there's some chance of success. Right. And that's what it was designed to do. Now, unfortunately, there are several of the seven terms in the Drake equation that we really don't know. For example, mm-hmm. if I give you a million planets like Earth, you know, how many of them are actually going to cook up life? We don't know that yet. If we were to find other life in our own solar system, pond scum on Mars, for example, at least then we would know that life is not so so unusual. But that still doesn't tell you whether intelligent life is unusual or if it is, you know, does it um, automatically, if you will, self-destruct? once it gets to the point of building powerful transmitters so we could find it. We don't know any of those things. And, you know, the last term, the L that uh, Natalie mentioned, the lifetime of a technological civilization, well, we really don't know. We've we've been technological for, frankly, less than 100 years. What's going to happen? Are we going to wipe ourselves out? I mean, maybe, depends on your point of view and, and our own actions. But if that becomes the, you know, the case, if once you get to a certain technological level, now you can wipe yourself out and inevitably you do, mm-hmm. then we're not going to find the aliens because, you know, they're all dead. So uh, the Drake equation, it doesn't answer these questions, mm-hmm. but it gives you the framework to discuss them. No, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I mean, some of these things, it just seems like you, you can't know or it, like, you know, it's it surpasses our ability to know now, but like you said, it is a very interesting uh, context to kind of put forward so you ask the right questions. Seth and Natalie, I want to thank you both so much for your time today. And this has been really fascinating. And of course, you know, everybody is uh, 
I think it's pretty universal. People are, are pretty fascinated with the idea of the search for extraterrestrial life. I appreciate you both very much for sharing your time today and your insights. So thank you so much. Thank you. Paul. Thank you.